0: I don't care what you want to do, I love it. And right. <laughs> go ahead. Right. Yeah) mm-hmm. and they don't, don't move. That's the classic.
1: Yeah. That's the That's, classic, that's the finest.
0: That's yeah. the best. Can you give me a, just a bit of a, maybe something else, if you want to do it like uh, Chavon yeah. <laughs> a folk, or art? something yeah, else I'll, that uh, gives them
1: I'll demonstrate uh, what I was talking about, the uh, Tin Pan Alley. This is a typical uh, The Tin Pan Alley, this three over four, is a three-note idea that's repeated. This idea of, with the regular ragtime base, you get a built-in syncopation effect, and became a big cliché. Here's, here's one. now. Uh, this is part of Dill Pickles' rag. This was one of the tunes that set that style. area okay. and he had a very rhythmic style. It uh, went kind of like this. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, uh More saloony. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that's where you play it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Would there be any
0: anything else that you um, did that um, as far? Well, I guess not as far as St. Louis. I don't. I don't want to get too far away. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. Now, uh, you play quite well. <laughs>
1: oh, French. <thanks>. All, right. <laughs> All right.
0: Let's. Let's. Talk back about uh, Joplin went away. Everybody went to Chicago. And what happened to St. Louis? And when did anything else happen here? What, what was the next step for St. Louis as far as ragtime?
1: Oh, let's see. The, I'll tell you what happened in the latter days. Was that the uh, Harlem stride influence found its way? St. Louis and this was mainly through Charlie Thompson I mentioned before mm-hmm. and Charlie talked about uh, meeting with James B. Johnson one of the great Harlem stride piano players and Charlie brought that style back to St. Louis and in tune with most ragtime in the late teens the music was getting faster and the dancing uh, the one step at, at Foxtrot had taken over so everything got faster and faster leading towards jazz. That was sort of the the last days of St. Louis Ragtime. Uh, Well after that, everywhere, the blues sort of took over.
0: And then there was a revival. Well, Gaslight Square, did that? Right, okay. Now did (coughs) the revival begin before Gaslight Square, or Gaslight Square came before? Gaslight Square being a section of St. Louis that well, is devoted to okay, nightlife. Well,
1: can think back... Then in the 50s, I believe. Mean. In the 50s, the St. Louis Jazz Club used to have uh, concerts, well, they had monthly meetings, but they, they, uh, twice a year they had all piano concerts, and they used to include Charlie Thompson in these. Uh, Gaslight Square got going about 1960, approximately. Late 50s, early 60s. Uh, in Gaslight, all types of music were featured. Uh, There were, like, at one point, there were five Dixieland bands. Uh, Our group started in '61 in Gaslight, and we were we featured ragtime piano. There weren't that many other places that featured ragtime piano.
0: Did you have an audience?
1: Uh, We built it at that time. people like to go to Gaslight and just walk around and try everything. Mm-hmm. So, especially weekends, it was very busy, and that's where we started to build our ones. From there, we went to the Goldenrod in 65. Um, our tuba player was part owner of Goldenrod, along with Frank Pearson. and uh, That's where we established a base, and that's where we started the Ragtown Festival. And by this time, there was, there was an interest a reawakening in ragtime—you can trace the, re- the reawakening of ragtime went back to the 40s, but um, there was nothing like that happened in the 70s with the Sting. That was the, that was the big turn. That was the big turning point for Scott Joplin's music because then the big turning point was that it was accepted in academic circles. I mean, here I am in Washington teaching ragtime. It was I wouldn't. I haven't dreamt that in the 60s <laughs>
0: <laughs> if only you'd known yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're legitimate Trevor <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, things that that was the big turnaround that revival with Joshua Rifkin's records on Joplin's sting uh, that's that was the big the big one the entertain and so forth Joplin's finally now no he's a household word you know people mm-hmm. know who Joplin is
0: How they feel about your country day going into this kind of thing?
1: Well, <laughs> well, at the at the time I left Country Day, I really had didn't have a notion I was going to be uh, full time ragtime. Mm-hmm. First, I started to carve out my own niche here. With that.
0: Uh, Well you, you begin to love it? Yeah. It begins.
1: Yeah, you know, by that time.
0: Tell me how that feels. I mean, tell me how you did feel getting into it more and more.
1: Uh, well, the basic trouble with music is, for uh, a full-time business, it's, a, it's a very unstable economically, mm-hmm. uh, And that, that's not only, uh, it seems to be affecting all levels of music. Uh, it, it affects, I'm a specialist, so it affects, it would affect a specialist before it would affect uh, a general studio type musician mm-hmm. who who um, play just about. Any style or anything, but I never. I got into music; it's just part of my uh, idea to keep ragtime alive and, and collecting and research and so forth. Music, it's just part of it.
0: What will you do with your collection?
1: Uh, there is a good chance that it'll become part of the Joplin House mm-hmm. Museum when I get the Joplin House going. But. Uh,
0: yeah, you took it from Dr. Pruitt.
1: Yeah, I, my collection was pretty well along by the time I got Doc's collection. But Doc, uh, Doc is uh, visiting him way back in the '50s. Was what one of the things that inspired me to collect more rolls because he had this vast collection. It looked vast at the time it was 1,200 <laughs> rolls, um, you know, which was a pretty big piano roll collection. Well, mine now is 8,000. Mm-hmm. But um, about a thousand of that are the actual rags. I mean, it's a lot of other stuff mm-hmm. that I collect, too. But uh, Doc was there, uh, sold me the, the, the piano. This was his piano.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, his collection. And uh, I think he mainly wanted to stay in St. Louis. Get a soft spot about that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've done. I wanted to stay here and keep the thing alive here.
0: we going way back now to the very beginning? Was there what is ragtime the relationship to to the other genres, the other musics, uh,
1: blues? Okay. Main thing that distinguishes ragtime is that it's uh, thematic music. It's like a uh, in classical thematic forms, like uh, say a Chopin waltz. Uh, you play a strain, repeat it, and move on. Uh, jazz is developmental music. Mm-hmm. It's based on your own ideas applied to something that's, that's written. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big difference. Uh, they both have separate histories. Certainly ragtime influenced jazz. Uh, it brought formal principles of music. These were the first published black tunes. And this is, uh, You get this perspective when talking about how Jelly Roll Morton, one of the jazz pioneers, knew the Joplin Rags. Louis Armstrong talks about practicing Joplin rag melody lines when he took up the trumpet. They learned formal principles of music and organization from Joplin's genius. So I think that was one of the main influences. Some of the early jazz stomps are called rags, like Snake Rag, which is Oliver King Oliver Louis Armstrong thing, a weatherbird rag. I mean these are jazz tunes but they're multi thematic like rags. They usually have more than two parts. So there was there was a big influence. Um the the blues comes into ragtime and the in the folk if you uh I'm fascinated by this this folk ragtime stuff that's uh, very unpredictable. There's a rag called One of Them Things published in Saint Louis in 1904, first strain is a twelve bar blues. Would you? That, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> Why
0: did I think just Well, my friend, Bob
1: Alt, who's, uh, we do the class together at Wash we mm-hmm. He knows, he learns some tunes, I play others, oh, and that's one of his favorites. Yeah.
0: Do you play them for the class? Yeah. Oh, Yeah, oh, we oh. play
1: rags for the class. I do some, and he does some. Mm-hmm. But, um, the blues was around a lot be- lot longer before, uh, the 1912. 1912 was when the blues became popular craze, with Memphis Blues by WCB and then two years later seeing those blues and Yellow Dog Blues and so forth. But they were around, and the folk players mixed both of the traditions freely.
0: Trevor, what haven't we talked about?
1: Um, let's see.
0: What do you talk about in your class?
1: But well, the class pretty much follows this book. What what uh, Jason and I have done is, is you know, taking all the literature, all the rags, and and tried to mm-hmm. organize them into different styles of groups. You know, it started with mm-hmm. folk, go into its classic, and then diversified the popular. Well, we're
0: ta- we this is we're thinking in terms of St. Louis yeah, more St. Louis.
1: Well, see, St. Louis was never a popular ragtime. Uh, see, that's all New York. Tin mm-hmm. Pan Alley took over. Uh, the big contribution here was Stark in the classic ragtime. There was nothing like that anywhere else.
0: And if it hadn't been for that, it wouldn't be the same.
1: No, there wouldn't be this this vast uh, classic ragtime literature. All these tunes by James Scott and Scott Joplin, and Joe Lamb. And that's the real heart and the Stark called the creme de la creme mm-hmm. of the ragtime. D-
0: was there any? Was there any? Um, oh problem when whites began to write it and compose
1: No that I mean it happened Just it all happened so fast one big and very heavy early. Thing. Yeah Jason described it once originally as music of the poor people, white or black when it was when it was evolving. Mm-hmm. That's, maybe that's one way to look at it. it. It was pretty much but I think you know the black most of the real pioneers uh, were black. I mean the itinerant players, mm-hmm. the professors, as they call them, and uh, that was they were the important ones.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Is there? Uh, I see down here from your your paper that you did you delivered that you, there was a place called Mother Johnson's Rawls Sporting Club.
1: Yeah, these were. In no, I
0: got this from. Uh, yeah, that's well, out.
1: that's. Oh, uh, in Blesch's book, the first book on ragtime, the Hoorah Sporting Club. These were just informal groups of folk, mm-hmm. t- musicians and hangers-on, mm-hmm. and,
0: uh, All, right. All right. Um, do you have anything, do you feel that you would like to, uh, add that I haven't touched on? I do. Here, here we are. Uh, Irving Berlin, Alexander's Ragtime Band,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Gershwin, Porgy and Bess, uh, Joplin and Siobhan died tragically. Yes. And uh, Irving Berlin. And Irving Berlin.
1: Yeah, he made a statement once. He never really knew what ragtime was. And I can believe that. <laughs> he, uh, Berlin, you know, was a great. American songwriter, and it just happened that he came along about the time Ragtime. So he, he took it up and he wrote Ragtime songs, you know, and you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Alexander's Ragtime band was originally instrumental, and it was uh, changed around and became a hit, but uh, we were talking about Tin Pan Alley right. after a song.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the two types of tragedies are very different. With Shyam and Joplin, I mean, Shyam was a wastrel genius who perished. At, I don't know from what uh, tuberculosis or I can't remember. Joplin's tra- well, Joplin's tragic failure was caused by disease also, but he was just not. Mm-hmm. His higher, his higher ideals, which were embodied in the opera, humana was ill-timed. He couldn't attract the backing. He bankrupted himself financially, and this compounded with his increasing disease, so it's a very terrible, tragic figure.
0: And he had, Trimannisha was published?
1: He published it in 1911, and then he financed a rehearsal performance Mm -hmm. without scenery and costumes, and just himself at the piano in 1915. This was an opera set on a plantation about ten years after slavery, near his the area where he grew up. I think the plantation is supposed to be in Arkansas. It's uh, a story about a, a baby found under a tree raised by the black community. and The black community is in the throes of superstition. They're held uh, in, uh, by the conjurors that sort of terrorize them. Trimanesha grows up and leaves her people out of ignorance and superstition, which theory was education was going to be was going to solve all the blacks' problems. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, typical for that time, but...
0: It's supposed to be autobiographical?
1: I think, yeah, to some extent, sure. Uh, But to see what was happening, anything that had to do with the plantation days and all that old mythology, that was being spoofed on Broadway and in New York. It was, you know, it was uh, was all past, and the, the work was misunderstood. Okay. He had no
0: chance. Came from the heart.
1: Yeah, and it, I don't think that anybody got past the fact that there's something on the, with the blacks on the plantation then, uh, what other conclusion can you draw? It's uh, anyway, it just it was a disaster, I and mean, then he never, he never could attract the backing, and it just broke his heart. And by sometime in 1916, Lottie uh, had to have him committed. Died in 17. All
0: right. And guest of honor came before that. Guest
1: of honor, we don't know much about Ed Berlin. This a New York scholar who who read the paper on Joplin. Here um, has tracked Joplin's and toured with it in small towns in Iowa and Missouri, which is a mystery to me why he would. Uh, maybe it's the only only gigs he could get. That mm-hmm. he toured in small towns, and he's and Berlin is tracing it through newspaper accounts. But the original scores disappeared.
0: And what made him want to do that? I think
1: what, write these offers?
0: just the next step in Oh this yeah,
1: he was uh, was a serious thought himself as a serious Black American classicist,
0: and—and mm-hmm. uh, and he was considered as such, was
1: generally so, right? even among the, the the notes that we have that were used for the writing. They all played Ragtime, but there are many musicians in New York, especially who knew Joplin, and they all say how much he was, he took it so seriously, it was much on a different level Mm -hmm. from what they were doing. Some of them resented it, but most of them respected him.
0: What do you think the future of Ragtime is?
1: Well, I think uh, we have a lot of, of composers who have taken up Contemporary ragtime writing and some of these ex- extensions of the old ragtime form they're making it they're going many different directions depending on who you're talking about but there I think there's a future for for uh, extended composition in uh, ragtime
0: why did Joplin okay go um, to New York instead of staying here
1: I think it's um might be a cliche, but it's the hope of, you know, it's, it's the goal of every serious, the most serious artist to go to New York and make, you know, make it big in New York. That's part of it. Stark went out there for the same reason. Mm-hmm. He opened in 1905. He was, by 1910, he was through. He was, he was defeated by Tim Finnelli and returned to St. Louis. And I think both of them went up there with the, with high hopes.
0: Did they go together?
1: Uh Art. no. No, let's see Stark. Let's see, nineteen five. Joplin was still here in nineteen five. Um Ed Berlin says that uh, Joplin was in New York by nineteen seven. I always thought it was nine, but he said by nineteen seven he was in New York and working on the opera. Mm-hmm.
0: And you said things were finished here. Yeah. As far as
1: writing. Yeah.
0: All right, Trevor, if you cannot think of something that might be I Mm -hmm. think
1: uh, think we hit most of that, most of it.
0: Then I thank you. You were very gracious. Oh, my Uh, pleasure. It was nice to be with you. Thank you.